This morning's text comes from 1 Peter 2, 11 through 25. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. A little harder to say thanks be to God after that one. Um, in 1814, I know you guys know this guy, but Ivan e- Krylov, um, the Russian poet and fabulist, uh, wrote a, a fable entitled The Inquisitive Man. Uh, which tells of a man who goes to a museum and notices all sorts of tiny things, but fails to notice an elephant. And the story spawned a proverbial phrase. Uh, Are we going to talk about the elephant in the room? A problem that is too big and obvious to miss, uh, but also one uh, that for one reason or another people would prefer to avoid. I did not know that it was Pastor's Appreciation Month, and how on earth does this passage fall on Pastor's Appreciation Month? That is not, we're going to move this to November. You guys can have the day off. Um, right, this is one of those types of passages um, that people read and say, okay, I can no longer believe um, in the God of the Bible. I, I'm, I'm out. Or... They read a passage like this and they say, okay, I can no longer believe that um, the, the Bible accurately represents God. So I either have to get rid of God or I have to get rid of this, this book because if this book seems to be representing God, I want nothing to do with God or, or maybe either. 
This passage has unfortunately in the course of history been used uh, as, a, as, as, as sort of fodder for keeping oppressed people under control. Uh, this passage, unfortunately, um, has also been used to validate a system of slavery. Horrific ways that this passage has been used. And so people take those readings, uh, or even, right, even the possibility of those readings. This is not just like, hey, this is an interpretation. If there is a possibility of it being interpreted this way, uh, then, then I have to distance myself from, from this book and, and from the God that it speaks of. So I want to say right up front, I have a lot of compassion, understanding, sympathy, empathy for, for folks who say, if this means that, then I'm out. I, I think if you somehow thought the Bible was supporting slavery, that would be a massive challenge to faith. So there we go. But I do want to spend some time this morning looking at how you can read this passage and still keep belief in a loving, compassionate God. And how the scriptures consistently show us a slavery-hating, corruption-judging God. And that's really important. I, I, I believe there's a way that you can read the Bible, even read passages like this that are really challenging, and keep a good relationship with the Bible, and see it as a true and authoritative source for revealing what God is and is like. So I want to tell you, we are going to deal with the elephant in the room that are parts of this text, the submission to the government part of this text. We're going to deal with that, the, 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 the slavery part of this text. But we're not going to deal with them first, or directly first, and so I wanted to mention that so that you weren't sort of freaking out internally, wondering if I was just going to skip over that because it's Pastor's Appreciation Month and try to just skate along on the easy parts of this text. So the thing's all related, but where we're going to begin is this wild concept of desires that spark from within us that wage war against the soul because that's where the passage begins and then we're going to get to the other parts but I just wanted to say it's it's really hard for me to hear hear those other topics addressed and not get to them right away which is why I put this little disclaimer at the beginning um but the challenging parts of this passage are bracketed with two mentions of the soul and so that's where we're going to begin dear friends I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. So we're going to remember, if, if you're just, just joining us, this is week four in First Peter. We've been going through it. So just as a refresher, Peter's writing to first century followers of Jesus that are gathered in communities, but those communities are scattered across first century Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. These believers, who he's writing to in particular, are suffering greatly for being identified with Jesus. They are going through a, 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 an intense, a furnace of persecution. In fact, most scholars who devoted themselves to a deep study of this letter do not believe that it was just generally written to encourage Christians and sort of, and, and, um, you know, generally encourage the church, but specifically help Christians um, suffering intense persecution to be able to endure 
and somehow have hope. So that's the purpose this letter was written for, to help people who were suffering intense persecution scattered across an empire that was going in all of its dominant narratives in a different direction to help them endure and sustain hope. And it's a relatively short letter. You can read it in about 40 minutes, uh, you know, depending on your, on, your, on your pace of reading. So we should really notice when Peter devotes space uh, to, to anything, any subject that's covered with this aim in mind in a short amount of space should, should clue us in that this is something that's important. And if something in such a short letter gets repeated, then that should also be a clue that something very important is going on. And Peter has actually already, in just chapter 2, returned to several of the same themes, one of which, at the top of the letter, is the spectacular um, new identity of those who are united to Jesus by the gospel, by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that we come into a new uh, identity in, in, in the fundamental core of who we are as human beings. Another, so that's one theme that he's returned to, another theme is the, is the peculiar way that given that new identity, we relate to the world. So he says, you have a new birth. We've said this each week. You have a new birth into a living, active, vibrant, alive hope. You have a share in the resurrection of Jesus, not as just some past historical event, but as, as an ongoing reality of your lives, that you could sing something like the same God who raised Jesus from the dead is alive in me. It's working right now in my life, right now in this room. New, new birth, living hope, share in the resurrection of Jesus, and an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. At the beginning, to a group of people suffering immensely, Peter says it's really important that you remember who you are. And that has a profound bearing on how you live. I want you to know that you're living as foreigners and strangers, as exiles in a world that is in many ways going to be going in an exact opposite direction of the new identity that has been birthed in you by connection to Jesus and the gospel. And you're going to feel the upstreamness of, of the way you're living, contrary to the wider culture that you're in. And that has been true for Christians in every single generation since Jesus walked the earth. And it's true of every single you know, historical, political situation. Even in the best possible environments, there are still realities where the Christian identity is as foreigners, exiles, resident aliens, strangers in the world. It's something that goes all the way back to Abraham who leaves his home and God's like, I'm going to tell you where you're going. But you see Abraham's life and he says, listen, I'm, I'm living in a place where I'm a stranger, a foreigner, an exile. So because of your new identity in Christ, there are going to be some implications for us. Because of your new identity in Christ, there's going to be some implications for how you relate to the dominant narratives of America how you relate to the lifestyle and culture that we find ourselves in. The, the text seems to be very clear. You're going to be different, and that is okay. In fact, that is expected. In fact, that is representative of what real life is. And then Peter does something important. He doesn't just locate the conflict out there in the world somewhere. 
and say, here's you in some sort of insular bubble and the conflict is gonna be out there in the world. No, he brings the conflict into our very rib cage. He brings the conflict crashing into our very lives. He says the struggle between your new identity in Jesus and alternative desires that, you, that, that are gonna be cropping up in your heart and mind is gonna take place in your life. The battleground on some level is gonna be in your soul. So read this slowly with me. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Peter is saying there is a category of desires that if followed to their fulfillment will result in a war being waged against your soul, against your true life. Like, I know, like, you just came in, like, you're like, oh, my croissant only had one strip of chocolate and said two strips of chocolate, and my kids didn't behave on the way, and I got brunch plans, and now you're talking to me about there's, there's a category of desires cropping up in my life that have followed, waged war on my soul? Pastor's Appreciation Month. I, I was going to say I didn't pick this, but I did pick this, actually. I didn't know what month it was. There's a category of desires that if followed to their fulfillment will result in a war being waged against your soul. And that means that the apostle is insisting there's an immaterial part of you that is of primary importance. And I know most of us know that, but just let, like, the body of Christ gathered together in a church setting is a place for reformation. It is a place to push back on the dominant narratives, lifestyle, and culture of the world that we normally live in and swim in and receive messages from. And so we need to be reminded that I'm not just a body, that there is an immaterial part of myself that is of primary importance. You have a soul. An eternal soul. may not be what people see. It is not on Instagram per se. But it is what makes you, you. Your soul. What is your soul? Your mind, your will, your emotions. Not, not just the gray matter of your brain, but your conscious thought. Your ability to make choices, what we call volition your emotional responses to the world. The, this is part of beginning to describe something that's really difficult to describe. I sort of, I kind of, in my child imagination that hasn't really changed, sort of think about the soul as like some, you know, like film inside me that's floating around somewhere. That like, but but it, it, it's, your, it's your consciousness, it's your mind, it's your will, it's your emotions, it's the seat of your personality, of your preferences, of your temper temperament of your memory it's the immaterial part of you that makes you you it's it's part of the way that you bear the imago day the image of god is that you were created with a soul with a capacity for a relationship with a spirit being right what we believe is wild wild this peasant jewish man on the corner of an empire lived 33 years and died and then somehow wasn't in his tomb and resurrected and his ghost now fills my very life with love and if that ghost fills your life too the result of it will be love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and fruitfulness and self-control and that you'll be united in family with people from all over the world and across the ages and with them forever in a city that's to come what let me just get an iced coffee and stretch. 
That'll be my spirituality, thank you very much. You guys are wild. You have a soul, an immaterial part of you that makes you you. Your mind, your will, and your emotions, the seed of your personality, preferences, temperament, memory. And there's a category of desires that if followed to their end, take casualties amongst your mind, your will, and your emotions. There's certain desires, the metaphor is showing us, that wage a military campaign against the deepest part of you. I want you to keep that in mind as we move through this. There are certain desires that crop up in the human experience that wage a military campaign against the deepest part of what it means to be human, against the deepest part of what it means to bear the image of God. Greed, anger, workaholism, lust, the love of comfort, pride, unforgiveness, racism, Hatred for someone else with a different political leaning than you, right? These are, these are I, I'm not going to, of course, name them all or trace all of them out for you. But you can begin to see there's a category of desires that maybe have an initial appeal to them. But if, you, if, you, if they get a foothold in your soul, in your mind, in your will, in your emotions, and you let them play out, the end result is that they will wage war and take casualties on the very deepest, most important part of who you are. An image bearer of God made for deep communal relationship with God and other people. Jesus summarized the whole human experience experience in the most profound way saying love God with your heart soul mind and strength love your neighbor as yourself and your capacity to do that takes place is lived out in your soul and there's a category of desires that if you act on them consistently what they will do what they will bear out in your life is a war on your soul so greed may initially seem I want to pick some initial ones that no one thinks they have Greed's always someone else. But it initially puts you in the place where you feel like you have greater outward security because you've amassed all this, this stuff for yourself, but it begins to warp your heart. It begins to cut against relationships. The way you view security from a place of greed begins to change how you fundamentally interact with other image bearers of God. It does damage to your mind, how you think. It does damage to your will, how you make decisions. It does damage to your emotions, how you react to the world and to the other people of the world. How you think Make decisions and feel can come, become distorted by greed. The, the metaphor of the text is that it wages war on your soul. Anger, same thing, right? This feeling of control that anger gives us because people, you know, like either don't want to challenge us or we're, we're locking antlers in a challenge. Like one way or another, it's our way of controlling the world. And there's initial draw to that because there's a power in it. But what it does is it begins to distort how we think, how we feel, how we make decisions. It wages war on our soul. Workaholism, right? The badge of honor that we wear as New Yorkers. How are you doing? I'm busy, obviously. I barely have time to talk to you about it. You have no idea. I'm working seven to midnight, I'm home, I'm working out, I'm sleeping for two hours, and I'm back to work. I'm, I'm, I'm dealing slightly from a pre-pandemic. Now you can work from home forever. No breaks. You're taking your computer in the bathroom, people. Stop that. 
anger, workaholism, lust, right? It's meeting a deep need of the soul in a shortcut way that begins to tear at the fabric of the soul and the body of the other person. It does tremendous damage to community. It does tremendous damage to the imago Dei of the other person. You're just a body that is there to meet my needs. I don't even have to, thanks to the internet, I don't even have to see you or know you or touch the system of exploitation that has delivered you to my screen. I just operate on my body's physical urges that I think are bringing me to satisfaction but are also waging war on my soul. The love of comfort, pride, unforgiveness, racism. Right To look at someone's skin, ethnicity, background, culture, heritage and, and begin in our mind to secretly entertain thoughts that we're somehow from a better place. All the harm that has rippled across the human story because of this evil. And then as soon as we begin to feel good about, I kind of got it figured out. It's our hatred for everyone who doesn't. If this line that you can't see right now, which is so it's bad for an illustration, but it's on the ground here and it's a piece of tape, represents um, an insight that you make in our, in our world. This is something that happens all the time. Someone's traveling along. They read something. They hear a podcast. They discover something. And then they step over the line of that insight. And now they know and you don't know. And then they turn around and be like, you're such an idiot. How do you not understand it? How do you not see it? How can you? You're disgusting for being on that side of the line. They've been on this side of the line for two minutes. What you find is the novices are the harshest. People who just made the discovery, they turn them on. They're not letting anybody across the line. It's the masters. It's the people who've been there for a long time who turn around and they're like gentle with you and compassionate. They're like, yeah, come along. You're going to be fine. Take a deep breath. See this in our culture all the time. We're just annihilating one another. And we don't get that it's waging war on our soul. The passage deals with corruption. <laughs> like what do you do if you find yourself in a government that's going an opposite way? How, you know, like... That was the assumed context of writing to these you know, scattered believers in the Roman Empire. But also, also slavery. So these things play out in the soul. But there is a way also that they play out in the soul of society. But we have, to, we have to acknowledge that we're a part of that. And so we have to begin looking at our own souls. We have to begin looking at that immaterial, uh, deeply important, prominent part of ourselves that is our mind, will, and emotions. And, the, and there's, there's a second mention of the soul that comes at the end of this passage. I'm going to get to it quickly, and then we're going to hit the controversial stuff. But he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. When I get to that part, it just feels like a deep breath. Oh, whatever is happening, I'm so glad that there is a shepherd and overseer of my soul. Someone who is tending to, caring. Uh, the passage says this person, whoever this is, it's Jesus, has literally put himself on the front lines given of this war, has put himself on the front lines given his very whole life for the love, care, protection, and health of your soul. 
He is the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And if you want to know how far he's willing to go for the care, love, and protection of your soul, look at the cross. That's how far Jesus is, is willing to be spread thin for your soul. For you to be brought into the family, healed, protected, loved, forgiven, delighted in. So he says, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such, this is the next part, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now this is the NIV and still it says pagans. Nobody says pagans anymore. Right? I mean, do you? <laughs> Sorry if you're big on pagans, relax. You're welcome here. But essentially, like, live such a life that no matter where someone locates God, they can see your life and, and begin to celebrate that there is good in it, that there is truth in it, that there is integrity in it, there is a protection of the immaterial part of someone else's life, that there's a conscientiousness to it, that there's a forgiveness about it, there's an aroma of generosity, that sort of like those things that no matter what we do see repeatedly celebrated in the human story over and over again, no matter what the culture was, <clears throat> there's, almost been no, uh, there's almost been no culture in the history of, of humanity that celebrated a lack of courage, that celebrated a, an abandonment of a commitment that you made, right? That, that didn't in some way stumble around to saying love is primary. Dear friends, listen, I know I haven't met many of you, Peter, saying, but I want you to know you have my love, you have my affection, we're a part of the same family, and we're living as foreigners and exiles. The life that you have in Jesus is gonna make you something of a stranger in the world. I want you to abstain, completely rid yourself of, desi of denier, de desires connected with your former allegiance and identity. These, these desires do not have your well-being in mind. In fact, they are built on an inherent lie. Dear friend, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, abstain from sinful desires which wage war on your soul. They wage war on how you think, how you make decisions, how you feel. And I just want to say this. We're in a uniquely dangerous time in our world related to how we think, to how we make decisions, and to how we feel about those decisions as a society, which all connect back to the soul, your mind, will, and emotions, how you think, how you make decisions, how you feel about them. I, I think, call it what you want, I think we have something of an information crisis on our hands where you can have some really important subjects that impact all of us as a, as a human community. And depending on the, the news or information sources that you choose, you can have wildly different understandings of those deeply important subjects. This has particular bearing on the church because you have people saying, if you want to be a Christian person of faith, united to Jesus and, and living courageously and truthfully, you need to live this way. Then you have another group of people saying, if you want to be a Christian united to Jesus, living courageously in truth, you need to live this way. And they're totally different ways. What do we do? Vaccines. Have you heard any controversy about these? How we talk about our national history, how we teach it. Any concerns about this come up? What is racism? Any concerns about that? What is this public leader trying to do? How competent are they? Any, any you guys registering any of these as, as issues that have come up? 
<laughs> a lot of concerns. And I want to tell you what happens, and this happens to me, I'm betting it happens to you, I'm betting it happens in your family as well, is that what happens is a floodgate is opened into our souls where the old desires get room to dance. And I begin to imagine myself as so much better than these other people who haven't crossed this line yet of insight that I have. And so I have bitterness and resentment and rage and unforgiveness and hate and all of it is absolutely justified because do you know what they have playing in their house 24-7? Or maybe you go to the other end of the spectrum and you're just like, it's, for me, it's just distraction, apathy, and exhaustion. I'm just done. I'm done with it all. Just give me my Netflix cue. I don't need to know what's happening. I don't care anymore. I'm over it. Both of those things represent old category desires that wage war on your soul, that diminish your love, that put you in a pride palace, a hard-hearted pride palace that no matter how spectacular it seems in the beginning is going to shrink down until it's just you. Honestly, if you were going to design a system from scratch to throw any truth into question and wage war on the souls of people, there would be many aspects of the American society that you would have to include in building this system from scratch. How we take in news, how we engage on the internet, what we do for entertainment, how we think about money, what we take for granted as, as just coming to us from being born in the world. But Peter seems to think that there is a way to live even in a society that is divided and to do so in such a way that occasionally your neighbors would see and begin to sense God in your life. Live such good lives among the pagans, among those who identify God in a different place than you. That, they accuse, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits you. That even if they want to attack the idea frameworks of your life, they would have no choice but to see that you operate from love and that love gets worked out in the everyday actions of your life. Peter is saying there is a revolution that has taken place in our inner being at the soul level because of who Jesus is, what he has done, and our being united to him by faith. And that new birth to a new life means we begin to train through the leading of the Holy Spirit to follow new desires, to live a certain way. And that revolution of the soul situates how we participate in the world. And it impacts and begins to name the type of revolution that God is after in the world. And that's really important for the other parts, the society-wide parts of this passage, is what type of revolution is Jesus after in the world? Namely, if you find someone or a group of people using power in a way that is corrupt or abusive or tears at the Imago Dei, do you have any options available to you? One of which seems historically to be violent overthrow. The other is to disappear into compromise. And Peter seems to be saying there's something that's not violent overthrow and that's not disappearing into compromise that is the way of Jesus lived out in the world. So I want to say a few things about controversial parts. I, I, I want, hold up a sign that just tells me where I'm at. Oh, that's not a good sign, but that's okay. 
That's not the, the sign I wanted you to lift up. That's okay. How are you guys doing? We're going to be, we're going to be fast but important. <laughs> um, okay, here's what Peter says. Submit yourselves. All, all that I've just said has to precede this. Our new identity, our understanding of how we're going to live in the world um, with that new identity. Submit yourselves to, uh, for, the Lord, for the Lord's sake. To every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and, and to commend those who do right. That's one thing he says. Another thing, slaves in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. Now, what I want Peter to say instead is if your government is doing evil, you do not have to submit to them and you can conspire to get rid of them by any means necessary. If I was writing First Peter, this is what I would say here. I prefer violent overthrow. And, and when it comes to this, when it comes to slavery and, and un- horribly unjust corrupt government, I want to lean towards, but, I, but just like peek open a history book, doesn't always work out. And it's such a part of the American story. Like really close to, I love God and I love Jesus. And some of America's mind is, I bear arms so that no one will do me wrong or oppress me. And if you start to, I'll get on online chat blogs and and start an overthrow or whatever. Like, this is deeply a part of the American story because we began with revolution. And it's one of the historical examples where um, that narrative is told in a way that is only seen as winning, so it can't be criticized. I want Peter to say, if your government is doing evil, you don't have to submit and you can get rid of them by any means, but that's not what he says. I also want Peter to say, slavery is horrific and wrong and evil in all of its forms and should be abolished from the earth forever. I want him to say that. It would make my life during Pastor's Appreciation Month so much easier. And he doesn't say that. Why? He had such a chance. Honestly, there's a bunch of things. When I get to heaven and I get to sit down with Peter and Paul, I'm just be like, you know how you could have done this and just saved us some time? But what I have to contend with and what you have to contend with is this is not just a philosophy. This is not even just a theoretical um, ethics treatise this is a letter written to people in real life who are actually suffering slavery and oppressive government the beautiful power of of the gospel message is that it was reaching people at every stage of life whether you were in the emperor's court or or whether you 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 somebody was calling you their property and the gospel was was transforming and 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 resurrecting and giving Jesus heaven life to people in every stage of life and so when peter writes to them they're this tiny minority <laughs> Scattered across first century Asia Minor in the grip of Roman power. They literally have no shot whatsoever of politically or militarily bending the will of the government or the society to them. They can't do the American thing and throw the tea in the harbor and then shoot everybody. So how do you write to someone who cannot change their outward circumstance in any drastic way... Is there a way that person can still live the gospel and still live the way of Jesus? 
I've already been mentioning, and I'm, I'm not trying to start a historical debate here, but the American story of revolution has given so many of us this, this sort of mentality that that type of thing is always possible and always successful, and it's just not consistent with this history. So can you live in the way of Jesus in an oppressive, corrupt government, even if you cannot change that government? Yes. This passage is saying, yes, you can. Can you have your first allegiance be to God, even if someone else is saying that you're their property? This, power, this passage is saying a powerful and dignifying yes to that. And the Bible keeps, I was going to mention this later, but the Bible keeps doing this. It speaks to the people that are under the power. It, keep, it continually speaks to the person in the power dynamic, in the weaker place, and basically saying, listen, give your heart to God. Let your first allegiance be with God, and I'm going to take care of this other person who's harming you. And it doesn't speak to them, but it just lets them hear the warning that the Father is coming. Watch out. So, with full knowledge that the Bible wasn't just written to America, we haven't forgotten that. Let me say this. The dominant narrative of salvation in the Hebrew scriptures is what? Exodus. It is a people being freed from slavery and led into promise. The champions of the abolitionist movement of slavery across the globe historical, many of them quite often have been followers of Jesus. Many of our American heroes of the civil rights movement were Jesus followers and their faith in, in Christ informed their work for freedom. If you think the scriptures somehow justify the owning of another person as your property, you have not been paying attention and you must learn to read the Bible and we must fundamentally and utterly denounce everyone who's come to that wrong interpretation of the scripture and used them in that way. It's horrific and evil and must be <laughs> acknowledged as so. If you think the scriptures give a pass to corrupt governments and those who lead them, then we need to go back and do a class on the prophets. Because that's just not how Yahweh works. A day of reckoning is coming. So whatever Peter is saying here, he isn't saying slavery is okay and your government is good even if they're really, really bad. He's saying there is a way to live as strangers and foreigners in a world that is wildly broken and that is going to get more wildly broken still. He is also saying that the revolution of Jesus is not a violent overthrow of one regime for another, which so often just results in the new regime becoming violent. He is saying also that you must not just disappear into the evil of your culture through compromise. He's saying there is another way to live as a creative minority in the world, to live in the way of Jesus in brokenness. And so he addresses the people who are experiencing slavery with love and dignity, and he unites them to Christ. The most elevated person in the story of freedom is Jesus, who wins our freedom by going to the cross. And when Peter speaks to the person who's experiencing slavery, he says, God's going to deal with those oppressing you, and, and you're like Jesus. Because even if the political and, and social situation isn't immediately changed, he's sowing hope into them that will not disappoint and he reminds the people in power that they will not have the last word and that they will be judged. He dignifies the people enduring abuse that they are united to and following the example of Jesus. He's, he's tracking with the Bible's tendency to speak to the person who's on the underside of power. And he ends the passage with this absurdity 
of going back to Isaiah's suffering servant, which is one of the most mind-blowing pictures of a king coming to set the world right that we've ever seen because this king is humbled and despised and beaten and ignored. There is the absurdity of the suffering servant inserted into the absurdity of human society. And it is the seed that is eventually going to grow the tree of life that heals the nations. Just hear these words. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is not violent overthrow and this is not weakness disappearing into the world. This is Jesus bearing the brunt of all evil has and coming back on Sunday morning saying, I'm here and I'm starting a new world and you're invited in as the firstborn, as those who have a share in the resurrection, new life, living hope, sharing the resurrection inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. The way of Jesus' revolution is different than the world. His disciples, everyone who saw his miracles, wanted him just to kick out Rome, overthrow, let's do the Hasmonean dynasty again, let's drive the empire out by might and force. And Jesus consistently says, there's another way, and I'm, I'm living it. It doesn't work by violence. It doesn't work by attacking strength with more strength. The cross is the paradox at the center of our salvation. In the Exodus story, it's the blood of the lamb spread on the doorpost that leads the people out into freedom. And Jesus says, when God steps into the story, what, what role is he going to play in the Exodus story? Is he going to come as the Pharaoh that then lets the people go? Is he going to come as Moses, the liberator? What's he going to come? He comes as the lamb whose blood is spread on the doorpost so that we can be free. He comes to the place of weakness to begin a new world. The way of Jesus is to go down to come up. And that just doesn't fit the American story quite often. And you know what we have to choose? The Jesus way. The cross is an obviously wicked and evil act in the world. And Jesus' trust of the Father on the cross precedes the triumph of the resurrection. Jesus goes to the cross to win our salvation, to set us free. And he comes back to give us new life. One day, God is going to set the world right. Hear that. Evil is not going to escape unjudged. And as much as we have glee at that, we also should tremble at that. But there is one equipped for judgment. And I'm glad it's in God's hands and not mine. And not yours, quite frankly, or not anyone out there on the internets. Because God doesn't do cancel culture quite the same way we do. He literally says, I'll give my very life blood to heal you and forgive you forever and make you family. So I want you to hear the last word for today. If you need to hear this, I need to hear this. 
We have a shepherd and overseer of our souls, of our mind, will, and emotions, our personality, our temperament, our preferences, our memory, our conscious life. One who deeply cares about you on the deepest level, who literally sowed the image of God into your being. And every single person, no matter their skin color or ethnicity or place that they were born or social status or, or level of income, that they, every single person in the world bears the Imago Dei and, and has, if they want, the shepherd and overseer of their soul. One who shows us his love by giving his life for us. So whatever, you, whatever place you find yourself in, this passage is saying, come back this morning to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. Bring your heart to Jesus. So here's the types of responses I think God's inviting us to this morning. One is to let go of desires that wage war on our soul. Where are the places that you've given space to greed or anger, workaholism, you know, lust, uh, uh, racism, hatred for someone who, who believes differently than you? Where have you given space in your heart for a desire that when it's followed to its end is going to wage war on your soul? Let go of the desires that wage war on your soul. What are you going to do with them? Bring them and offer them to Jesus, the shepherd and overseer of your soul. The second is to live the way of Jesus in dignity in the face of evil in the world. Live as a full-blooded imago day image of God bearing beloved son or daughter and know that the truest identity of, of your life is not what someone else says about you or not what our culture says about you. It is that you have been given new birth into a living hope, a share in the resurrection of Jesus and into an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Live in the world in the dignity of your new identity in Christ. And then I want to say, even though the passage doesn't specifically get this far, I think the New Testament shows us over and over again that this is the way, is look for coalitions of love that can bring change in the world. I don't think the response to what Peter's saying here is apathy, that things just have to, that we disappear into the evil of the world through compromise. No, I think we need things like the abolitionist movement, right? There, as much as we sneer at these ancient societies or at even our own history, we still have slaves in our in our. In our communities and countries now, right? People that may, maybe they're, they're, they're slaves in everything but name because they cannot take a single day off. They're being ground into powder by the machine of our economy. But there, we need to look for coalitions of love to bring change in this way that's between violent overthrow and disappearing into evil through compromise. And that is the way of Jesus and we're not doing it alone. This wasn't written to one person. It was lit, written to coalitions of love. It was written to communities that actually did, if you look at the historical record, change the face of the oppressive Roman Empire in about 300 years. And no conference speakers and no, no books being published. Can you believe it? How'd they do it? No idea. The Holy Spirit, coalitions of love that brought about change. We have to move forward in love, church. Anne Lamont said, if God hates everyone you hate, it's a sure sign you made God in your own image. So we look to Jesus. That is our example, and that is the firstborn from among the dead, the hope of the new city where the healing of the nations, every tribe, tongue, and nation represented in the kingdom of God. And so also Jesus, this is Hebrews 13, and we're closing here. 
suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. How far is God willing to go? Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. We are looking for the city that is to come, and we are going to Jesus, the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Let us go to him. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray in Jesus' name that you would help us to name and identify the desires of our old life that are waging war on our soul, to turn them over to you and surrender in faith. God, I want to pray you would show us this space that we can live as, as foreigners, strangers, and exiles in our current moment in America and push back against the evil and brokenness of our world that we, we're not choosing violence and we're not choosing disappearing into compromise. God, I, I sense we need so much love and so much discernment in that place. I pray you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. You would show us the way of Jesus that we are united to Christ and he has, he has gone before us into injustice. But that your hope for the world, your, your prophetic promise is on the way. May we hide in it. May we hold on to it. May we be nourished by it day by day. Show us, Lord. Show each of us how we are meant to respond by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.